0: This is fair play Justice
1: Hi. So imagine you're in prison for something that you did and you've been judged upon by the court system and you're in there paying the price of what you did. Fair enough. But what happens when while you're in there paying the price of the wrong that you did, you get some extra benefits like being punched beaten up, your balls being smacked with a rod, leaving you naked for a couple of days in freezing temperatures while you sleep in urine and shit all around you because they want to teach you a lesson. Punish you so bad that you never forget it. Yeah, I I will never forget it. The way you took away my God-given rights, which are protected by the Constitution as well, that you swore to uphold, I will not forget it how you violated my rights, I will keep coming at you with such a force that you won't be able to push back until justice is achieved and you're held accountable. If you don't believe any of this, well, then let's speak with someone you can't push back, and that is Trent Michael Taylor, because he proved through the highest court in America, the Supreme Court, that just because you work for the government, you can't fuck with me and get away with it. I will come and get you. Welcome to Fair Play, Trent, and thank you for your time.
2: Hi, hey, uh, this is Trent. I'm glad to, that you brought me on here so that I could speak and tell people my story of what really happened and let them know that we can't stand up for ourselves. So
1: was there anything wrong in what I just read, Trent?
2: No, no, not at all. If anything, you didn't cover enough of it.
1: All right. So that's why we're having this interview. Uh, you know, first of all, I, I wanted to acknowledge your courage to stand up, not just for yourself, but also for so many others who are incarcerated and get violated every day, who don't have a voice yet, and also for being strong and not to take their pushback despite the odds against you. So I know it's going to be tough, but if you don't mind, tell us what happened. Take us back to how it started.
2: Well, uh, you know, I I, I was on a Robertson unit uh, in Abilene, Texas, the maximum security unit. And, you know, they had um, anything you wanted you could get. Well, basically what had happened was I had a knee pain. Always, it was always, always bothering me. But they had me all the way on three-row. I ended up overdosing on some pain medication that wasn't prescribed to me. So after I overdosed, I was sent to the hospital. Um, once I got out of the hospital, for some unknown reason, they decided they were going to send me to a psychiatric hospital and say I tried to kill myself which I never did. I never attempted to commit suicide. It was an accidental overdose. So um, once I got to the, what uh, was called the John Mumford Unit, as soon as I got there, they it was me and another offender, but we were we went through the little bookend proceedings that they do and all that. So uh, they were taking me to the cell, and I remember uh, the three officers that were taken. There was actually four. One was a cameraman, and you had Officer Cortez, Officer Hunter, and Officer... Um, uh, I can't really remember the other one's name right off top, but uh,
0: mm-hmm.
2: while I was walking there, you could you could smell like the whole hallway smelled like shit. Excuse my language, but mm-hmm. that's what it smelled like. Mm-hmm. So as soon as we get to the door, now, mommy, I'm handcuffed behind my back in a pair of boxers only. I've been paraded around a whole unit in a pair of white see-through boxers.
1: Why? So uh,
2: that's that's what they say their protocol is is to, it, but it's really done to humiliate you and to uh, degrade you. Um, okay. Well, when we, get, when we got to the cell, they opened the door, and as soon as the door opened, it was just, the, the smell was overwhelming. And there was shit everywhere. I mean, as soon as you open the door, you could see it. Like, there were smiley faces painted on the wall. There were swastikas painted on the wall. And they what they did was they grabbed my boxers, snatched my boxers off of me, and pushed me in the cell and closed the door. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I am talked to them, like, hey, man, what's up with this, man? So um, they was like, uh, you're going to have a long weekend. Well, they ended up getting, I had to lean down so they could take the handcuffs off of me. Once they got the cuffs off, they closed the bean slot. Um, after further inspection, like, because I'm now naked, nothing, no no blanket. Well, I had, a, there was a little blanket on the bunk that had uh, feces on it, too. Mm-hmm. But I, other than that, I was naked. Um, the toilet was covered in feces, the ceiling was, the windows, and the water faucet was. So, which prevented me from drinking water at all. Well, while sitting there, there's inmates across the hall. He had yelled at me. He was yelling my bunk number. Mm-hmm. So I go to the door, and he tells me to say, dude, look, I apologize, but I'm the one that shit that cell down. And he's like, um, I have hepatitis C, so be careful. Whoa. Well, throughout that whole, little I want to say that was on a Friday. Yeah, that was Friday. So throughout Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, they kept me in that cell. Well, I kept asking them. I'd ask every guard, hey, man, can I get, can I get something? Some, can I get moved? Can I get some help? And they'd all just blow me off like I was just a retard or, or a psych patient. So I remember that Monday morning I woke up and I asked the officer, I said, look, I haven't had nothing to eat or drink and last four days, almost. And it was so hard for me to talk. I was like, man, can I get some water? Her name was, uh, I want to say, Miss Young. And she told me, she was like, well, if you wanted some water, you should have went and gotten a shower. I said, nobody ever offered me a shower. And she's like, well, it's over with. So they basically just left me in their well. They came to take me to talk to the uh, psych doctor. And when he came... He basically told me it was uh, Dr. McDonald. He was like, well, look, you're either going to willingly admit yourself or we're going to involuntarily commit you for a year.
1: So all this time you're naked when they're talking to you?
2: Yeah, the whole time I'm naked, yeah. Um, Yeah, the whole time, there's no clothes, period. You're not even allowed to have clothes on that area. Um, They were bringing my food to me. They would bring it, open the slot, take it out of the wrappers, and throw it on the shit-covered floor because you're only allowed to get sandwiches.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh, and then the cereal, you know, they would um, take the cereal out of the container and pour the cereal out on the floor too. So, but to them, it was just a joke. Well, when I talked to the psychiatrist that I I did what he asked me to do, I signed saying that I would stay because he said I can sign and leave right after that. So I go back to the cell and I was supposed to get moved. They didn't move me. Well, the very next day, they came and got me, and they took me out of the cell. Mm-hmm. So then they came right back to get me and put me back in the same cell. And I was like, no, I'm not going back in there. So uh, they called the uh, sergeant that was working today, which was Shane Swaney And I, I remember he comes to things. He's like, man, what's going on? And I was like, look, man, that cell's covered in shit. So he tells me, he says, uh, dude, this is Mumford. They're shitting all these cells from from years of psych patients. He's like, but I'm going to see what I can do. If not, you're either going to go in there by force or you're going to go by choice. It's up to you. Okay. Well, he went and talked to um, another officer and he came back and he said, uh, well, you're going in that cell whether you want to or not, unless you say the magic word. And what he was referring to was me saying I was suicidal to go to the cold room. Um... And the cold room is just a box. Basically, it's like a closet with no furnishing, no nothing but a floor and a and a hole in the floor with a drain on top of it. Mm-hmm. But it's not a restroom. The hole is not used for toiletry. So I told him, I said, "Well, I'll do whatever you want me to do. If you say I'm suicidal, I'm suicidal." So he says, "All right." So what they do is they escort me to seclusion, the cold room D251. So when I got in there, this cell was way worse than the cell I had just came out of. Yeah. Because at least in that cell, I had a bunk, like a steel bunk that I could lay on top of that just wasn't too covered in feces as long as I stayed in the same spot. Well when he closed the door on me, he told me, he said, don't ever ask me for help, and I hope you fucking freeze in here. So the smell was so bad like the guards, they would have, they would have to come through one door, through another door to do 15-minute checks. They're supposed to check on you every 15 minutes. The smell was so bad, they, were, they wasn't coming for about an hour, hour and a half. And when they would come, they would just gag. I remember a nurse Henderson even asked, she said, how can you live like this? And I told her, I said, I don't have no choice. Y'all make me live like this. Okay. The hole in the floor, which was the drain, it was pumping sewage. So I remember I asked them, I kept begging them like, hey man, can you move me, can you move me, can you move me? Well, the ammonia smell had gotten so bad and I had just had that major overdose. I, I started, my chest was hurting and everything. And I remember I was banging on the door. Well, I was knocking first because I, I remember I told Miss Parker, can I get a restroom break? She told me she'll let uh, the other officers know. Well, a couple of hours go by and at this time I had already been in a cell about 24 hours. So I'm begging them, hey, please let me go use the restroom. So when they come back, he was like, uh, male officer comes back in there. He says, "Uh, use the restroom just like everybody else, pissing the floor. Mm -hmm. So I was like, man, hell no. Well, Riois comes in there, and he's the active duty sergeant. And he's like, why are you banging on my door? I said, dude, I'm not banging on the door. I'm, I'm knocking loudly because... I'm behind two steel doors in another room and I need y'all to hear me. Mm-hmm. I need to use a restroom. So he tells me, he says, I got over 5,000 inmates I got to deal with. And I told him, I said, look, you're lying. There's only 535 people on this unit. So he started laughing. He says, all right, you caught me. You caught me. So uh, he said, well, check this out. If you calm down, I might let you go to the restroom here in a little while. So I told him, I said, dude, I haven't been to the restroom in over 24 hours. So, um, uh, He kind of made fun of me and all that. When he leaves, that's when, like, the smell was so overpowering that I started coughing and I started having chest pain. So I'm trying to tell him, like, hey, I need some help. I need medical attention. Well, it took him about an hour and a half, two hours to finally come back there. And I told him, like, I told him, I said, man, I need some help. So they called the main infirmary, Nurse Henderson did. And the ER told them to bring me to the ER. Well, they said they didn't have the staff to bring me to the emergency room. So they were just going to leave me in there. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Well, they finally come. They're suited up. They have the camera on. And uh, well, prior to this, I lost all bodily functions in my bladder. And uh, something had happened to it where I, I, I just peed all over myself. But I tried to get it in the drain or towards that area. So I got on my hands and my knees, and I started scooping raw sewage, trying to get it towards the door so that I'd have an area to sleep. Now you have three air conditioners that are constantly blowing directly on you. So I'm soaking wet with sewage. I'm freezing. So when they come in, Nurse Henderson once again, she was like, well, what happened? So Ms. Parker told her, be careful. There's piss and sewage in front of that door. Don't step in it. So the sergeant, when he opens the door, I'm telling him, I'm like, hey, look, man, the train stopped up. Look how y'all got me living. And he, they had me handcuffed behind my back, standing there butt naked. And this was on video, but apparently they lost the video is what they told the court. Well, they pulled me out, and I tell him, I said, man, I'm not a dog. I'm not supposed to be treated like this and he says you're right I treat my dog way better than this so he asked him on camera he was like hey y'all go give me a towel so I can spot dry this shit that's in front of the door so he took the towel and he cleaned up the spot where the officers would have to walk so after that they did a little um, heart rate check and all that on me and gave me some medication well they took me and they forced me down on the floor in raw sewage and laughed and then close the door. So I laid in there, I mean, literally going through it and freezing. And I remember, because I was begging him, I was like, uh, Officer Ortiz, I'm like, please, just just get, get me out of here. Man, I'm freezing. My teeth were chattering so hard I can barely talk. So he just laughed and everything. Well, a couple days go by. Then the next card flipped over. And the lady came in there that morning And she was like oh, What the hell And I was covered from head to toe in sewage And she was like How long have you been like this And she looked at my paper And she I think her name was Monica McCraw And she was like um, Holy shit you've been here for days like this Has it been like this the whole time I told her yeah So she's like okay this is what we're going to do I'm going to put you in the shower So she pulls me out Puts me in the shower When she comes back and she was like, look, I'm going to put you back down here in the cell until the Sergeant Witten gets here. Well, Sergeant Whitten shows up, and when I'm, well, they put me back in the cell, and I end up falling asleep again, and it just, it floods hardcore this time. So when I get up, Sergeant Whitten's at the door, and he starts punching on the door. He's like, who the fuck put you in here like this?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So he's like, he tells the other officer, he's like, man, get him the fuck out of here and get him back in the shower. So they take me and they put me in the shower for a couple hours Well, they're like, okay, we're going to move you to a different cell now. So they come to get me and they started taking me right back to the same shit-covered cell upstairs. Man. So we get there and I pointed out to escorting Officer Trevino and them, I'm like, look, man, this place is covered in shit. So he was like, man, you're, you're, you're not playing. He's like, I wouldn't go in here either. So they take me to the day room. When I get to the day room, Sergeant Jones shows up And I tell him I'm like man I'm not going in there Look at that So when he comes to me His name is Tyrone Jones He's like Look dude I applaud you For not going in there But I gotta do my job And they say To put you in there So I'm gonna put you in there He said I wouldn't go in there either He said But what I'll do Is I'll clean everything In that cell But the ceiling He said We don't have nobody Ladder trained To clean up the cell So I was like Look dude I'm not going in there so they ended up taking me to another seclusion cell. Well, mind you, I had told you that my bladder had relieved itself so I, like I lost bodily function. Yeah. Well, um, the night of the 13th, you had Officer Tony Thomas there. He was a real good dude, stand-up guy. Uh, I, I commend him. And I told him, I said, dude, I'm having problems. I need to use the restroom. So what he does is he, instead of bringing a bunch of people in there, he just gets me out. Now, I'm naked in handcuffs behind my back, and I have to use the restroom. This, I, I mean, I can't be mad at him for that. That's the rules. But he at least gave me as much privacy as he could. But it hurt. I couldn't use restroom. It hurt too bad. So um, he kind of documented it. Well, the next day, I was in so much pain. It was my birthday, September 14, 2013. And I remember Nurse Orr came in there, and I told her, I said, hey, I need to see a doctor. I need to see a, a male doctor. Well, no, I said, I need to see a doctor. So, what she told me, this was a Saturday. She said, Well, fill out a sick call. You can only fill out sick calls on Monday. And you can't fill them out when you're in seclusion because you can't have pens or paper. Man. So, there was no way for me to fill out no sick call. Well, all day I lay there in pain, suffering. Like, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just knew that my. Bladder area, groin area was hurting really, really bad. So um, I want to say it was about five. What about
1: food? What Did you eat anything after that?
2: Um, I was able to eat a sandwich in that cell. that cell. That was another seclusion cell, but it wasn't the same. That was the first cell after being there seven or eight days that I had been able to eat.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That was the first time I had got to eat. Now, they were giving me a little bit of water. What they would do is they'd give me like a little two-ounce fluid cup of water here and there, depending on what officer it was. But Tony Thomas, commendable guy, he gave me everything I was supposed to get. And uh, he's the one that told me, he said, look, dude, what they're doing to you is called deliberate indifference to your health and safety. He said, you do not forget that. He said, "Whenever you get a chance, you look that up because that's exactly what they're doing to you. It's deliberate indifference and in violation of your Eighth Amendment right."
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I didn't know anything about the law at this time, so I told myself, "Well, I'm not going to forget that." And every time he would come to the cell, he would tell me the same thing: deliberate indifference. Yeah. So, um. Finally, when I told the nurse, she came back in about five o'clock. I was like, "Man, I need to see a male doctor." She's like, well, "Why?" I said, I need to see a male doctor. She said, Well, I have two two boys, you can tell me. I tell her, I said, I can't pee. And something's wrong with me.
0: Yeah.
2: So she kinda she has the officer open the door and she looks at me and she's like, Holy shit Well my bladder was distended. Yeah. Um She's like, We gotta get you to the emergency room. So they call the sergeant up there, the acting sergeant John McCraw. He comes up there and it's like, dude, do you just need to the handcuffs off and you go pee by yourself? I said, no, dude, I can't use the restroom, period. Yeah. So they parade me down to the infirmary. They have a little blanket wrapped around me. I'm butt naked. Well, they get me on the gurney, and right there at that unit is where all the officers come in, and it was shift change at this time. They take me butt naked. I'm handcuffed behind my back. They lay me down on the gurney. They wheel me in front of the window. They open my legs, and they put a catheter in me. Man. And they leave me like that, allowing everybody to watch it. Um, And this was my birthday, you know, a hell of a birthday present, right? Mm. So after that, finally they was like, okay, yeah, you have an infection, this, that. There there, there was stuff that was wrong with me. So they take me back upstairs. So that Monday, which was the 15th or the 16th, I believe, might have been the 15th, 15th or 16th. <clears throat> they come to get me and tell me I'm moving. So I ask them where, and they say B2. And they tell me the same shit-covered cell. I tell them I said, it's over with. I'm not going nowhere. Stood up. Well, they come back a few hours later, and they're like, hey, look. We're going to move you to a different cell. You a Hispanic lady. I don't remember what her name was. And she's like, you're not going in that cell. Sergeant McCraw shut it down for contamination due to fecal matter so this was 10 days after i first told them
0: mm.
2: hey look this cell is covered in here. so they put me in a cell directly across from it and you could see the sign that was on the cell that said sergeant john mccraw shut down red tagged, due to fecal contamination
0: Man.
2: well they bring an inmate a trustee in there in full chemical gear from head to toe he's covered and sanitation gear and they have him clean the cell but this is the same cell they had initially been blood naked in but they gave him all this stuff to protect him from the hazard yeah so at this time i had already told him like three or four times hey i want to discharge i don't want to be here y'all are holding me against my will i'm being tortured and i was writing. now i had the one officer write it on there hey i'm being physically tortured please let me go they just kept ignoring me, ignoring me, ignoring me. Well, they popped up, and they came, and they were like, hey, you're moving. So I'm thinking I'm going to go get a mattress and all this and all that. So um, they take me in are laughing, and I'm like, what's up? And they're like, yeah, you're going to a 13 row I don't know what it is. So when I get to a 13 row it's called their Suicide Prevention Program.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You're butt naked on Johnny's, no mattress, no nothing for a minimum of 15 days. No human interaction, nothing, no toothpaste, no reg, no soap, nothing.
1: That's suicide prevention? Uh, you, that would make me commit suicide, yeah. not prevent it.
2: Yeah, and, and you only get five pieces of toilet paper a day. Mm-hmm. Um. So they had me there.
1: Um. You spent 15 days? Well, they were starving. You spent 15 days there.
2: Yeah, I spent 15 days in there. Um, How did
1: you do it, man?
2: But uh, I would lay down in my bunk, and or I would work out. But mainly, when I would lay down, I would just, I guess you could say, I created an alter ego. I created a safe zone, a place that I could go in my head and have a life. Mm. I mean, because you have nothing, like literally nothing, but four walls. That's it. Like, um, it's 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 enough to really drive you insane. But the things that they were doing, like uh, how they were starving us. And the Hispanic officer came to me, and he's like, hey, man, you've been chilling with me today, man. I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to give you a burger. So I was like, hell yeah. So he brought it from the ODR or from the kitchen. So I get the burger, and I'm not thinking nothing about it. You know, it comes in a wrapper. I pull it out. It's just an in-prison burger, just meat and cheese. I mean, uh, meat and bread. I take a bite into it. It's crunchy. They had put the big cockroaches all the way across the whole burger. Why, man? I'm I mean, just out of spite, you know. Um, I
1: mean, what do you... There were
2: inmates on... there. Was
1: What did you do to them?
2: I didn't do anything to these people. At this time, I didn't do anything to these people. I really stayed out of officer's way at that time. I mean, they, they, they instilled a hatred in me for them. But when I bit into the car, I was so hungry that all I did was just lift the bread up and knock the co- cockroaches off and eat the burger. So then you had a dude down the hall that you could always hear yelling and talking smack to the officers. So you had this officer named Isabella. And he had a, a, a bowl of peanut butter and a loaf of bread. And he was like, hey, dude, he's like, I'll give you this peanut butter and I'll give you this loaf of bread if you go in here and beat this dude to death. Man. Mind me, I'm hungry. I'm extremely hungry and I'm willing to do anything for some food. So I, I was laughing and I was like, how you got to do is open the doors. Well, you're secured behind doors. So this man unlocked my door and he went and unlocked this other dude's door. Damn. And what he did first was he gave me a piece of bread with a little bit of peanut butter on there. He's like, here, get you some energy up. So he made us go in there. He made me go in there and fight that dude naked for some peanut butter. Um,
1: In front of the
0: officer.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had us in there fighting naked uh, for some peanut butter. And I mean, a lot of people are gonna say that's horrid, which it is, but I was hungry, bro. In there, it was survival of the fittest. And, um, I hate that it seems that way. I hate that it happened, but at that time I just wanted to live too, you know, um, I went in there, I went in that place, what, 160 something and I almost 160 and I left there like 120 in a matter of two months. Um, well, they kept me on that program for like two months, I mean 15, 16, 17 days well, they pulled me off on October 2nd. They, that, that's over a, almost a whole month that I had been butt naked on what they call Johnny's no mattress, no blanket, no toothpaste, nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, no outside correspondence. I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody, nothing. Well, I immediately wrote a grievance and a withdrawal form saying, hey, I've been tortured physically. Please let me go. Well, they kept refusing it, and there was a dude across the hall, Nicholas Castleberry. He had um, a hot cambro A cambro with some 200-degree liquid fell on him and melted his legs.
0: Yeah.
2: And they, they used to make him crawl around for fun. They would take his uh, walker from him or his wheelchair from him and make him crawl from one end of the unit to the other end of the unit because they thought it was funny. And he was telling me about his law, The
1: guards used to the do what? that? Yes,
2: yes. Mm -hmm. So when he was telling me about the lawsuit, he told me, he said, look, there's a thing called uh, summary judgment. He said it's what killed him in his lawsuit. And I didn't know anything about summary, I mean, anything about the lawsuit stuff or the law, except for what the old man Tony Thomas had told me, deliberate indifference. So we were talking, we were talking, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to get a law book. So I was writing to the law library. They're bringing me stuff. Well, all I did for a whole entire month, all day, every day, was copy legal work down. Mm-hmm. I finally, oh, well, you had this lady named Melissa Olmstead. That's the one that I went to trial, ended up going to trial and representing myself on her and won. So we get into it about something. I don't even really remember what it was. Mm-hmm. And um, so I said a few choice words to her. She said a few choice words to me. Well, oh, I, I, I wanted my mail. I had some legal mail and I I, I had been out of uh, I had been eligible to get it for over a week. So I stuck my arm out the slot and I said, please go get the sergeant. He's like, give up the slot. I'm like, I'm not going to give up the slot until you go get the sergeant. So uh, finally, they go get the sergeant. and I tell him, hey, I'm supposed to get the mail a week ago. I need it. Well, they write me a case. They put me on food loaf and all that for, for jacking the slot. I was non- I mean, I was combative as far as, like, I wouldn't give up the slot, but I wasn't dangerous or doing anything to harm anybody. I was just sitting there reading a book.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, when they put me on food loaf, the next morning they brought me a food loaf that was a month past the expiration date.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm telling the officers, and they see it, and they're like, wow, well, um, you know, maybe it's just an error. Well, the next day, they're doing the same thing, bringing me food loaves that are months past the expiration date.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and you had the officer for Gibson she said "Look, dude I'm not giving this to you I talked to lieutenant we're going to put you back on regular trays well when that happened the next day Miss Olmstead worked over there again she come to my cell and she was like well I see you cried like a little bitch and got off food loaf so I'm like alright well she ended up skipping me at lunchtime mm-hmm. didn't get my lunch or nothing so when she came back later on I'm, I pulled her, pulled her up and I'm like hey why are you steadily tripping with me So, uh, no, she gave me the lunch. Yeah, she gave me, it was the dinner she jacked me for because that's when we had our little incident. But she gave me the lunch and uh, I'm like, hey, why are you steadily tripping with me, man? I ain't done shit to you. And she's like, you're always running around here crying like a little bitch and this and that and writing grievances. And I'm like, what does that got to do with you though? And uh, so that's when we had our words and the bean slot was open because she was grabbing a tray. Well, she had a two foot pry bar and she took it and she ran it through the bean slot and hit me in the groins in a pelvic area why and then she i i don't i mean i guess because she didn't like what i told her because I, I was talking shit to her she was talking we were both talking shit to each other but i mean i'm an inmate she was an officer she's supposed to be able to keep her cool and really i believe she started it so i mean i had the right to defend myself whether it be verbally or physically in my mind that's what i've always been taught and so when she ran the steel bar through there she hit me in the groin and she got me really really good like to the point where I could barely even walk mm. so um they that's when they jacked us me and my cell for our food at, at dinner time they didn't open our slot again well when the next shift came on I told the officer I'm like man look and I was trying to show him like look look I'm messed up man I need some a medical help immediately he's like oh you're being too demanding fuck you well, about four or five officers come through and I'm telling them all the same thing. Nobody's paying attention. To me. Well, Miss Parrish, the nurse, she comes through and I show her, like, hey, look. And she's like, Holy shit, I'm getting you to the emergency room. So they get me to the emergency room. I'm talking to the office uh, to the nurse and all that. Well, she prescribing me medication and all this and she's like, Okay, yeah, there's some injury here. And um so as soon as she, she's like, so what happened? Got kicked or what? What happened? I'm like, no, no I got hit by an officer. So she's going and she's like, you got what? I said, I got a, it's an assault by an officer. She's like, hold on. So she steps out of the room. She comes back in a little while later. And she's like, okay, we're done here. It's over with. So he can go. And I'm like, what's up? She's like, nothing. But she basically came back in and said, hey, there's nothing wrong. Get him out of here. mm um, now that we know it's the officer, we're not going to go against our officer.
1: Qualified immunity.
2: But they gave me the ice pack. Yeah. That's so basically what it was. And she she gave me an ice pack, and she gave me medication. She gave me an ice pack for the swelling, is what she put on the documents, and then an ice pack for the, I mean, uh, ibuprofen for several days several days for the pain.
0: Mm.
2: So then she did her little old paper, but I wasn't allowed to see it or anything. But I kept telling them, like, hey, what's up with the pictures? Y'all need to take pictures. They're like, no, nah, we're not taking no pictures, dude. I'm like, why? You're supposed to, and they, they refused to take them. But this was the same sergeant that I got into with over the shit, Sergeant Rioa. We had so many run, run-ins, me and him, we did. And he's the main one. I'm still on my lawsuit.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But um, they came back, and they told me, and there was a witness that seen her. He didn't see her where she hit me. But he's seen her take her bar and run it through my slot, and he's seen me drop Mm. um, because me and him had been talking to each other at first, and he's directly across from me. Well, they came and said that I was just mad at her, so I was lying on her. And they, you know, I I ended up staying there for two months. So finally, I got to see Dr. Henretta. And I'm talking to him, and he looks at me, and he says, Hey, dude, you're not even supposed to be here. Why are you here? I said, exactly. That's what I've been telling y'all the whole time. So I finally get back to my unit of assignment, and I get to see my medical records. And I'm seeing in my medical records that these people, before I even got to that unit, had already conspired with each other to keep me there. Mm -hmm. The head person had already told them, do not let him go. Keep him here. Um, then there was nurses that were seeing things that was happening to me, and they were documenting them. Mm. They wasn't telling the officers they were documenting them, but they were putting them in there. Mm. So I, um, I started going to the law, law library, and I found a guy named James DeMoss. And I told him, I don't want you to do my legal work for me. I want you to teach me how to do my legal work. So he did. So I studied all day, every day. That's all I did. I'd go for four hours guaranteed every single day. Then I would read law every day for about eight or nine hours in my cell. And I would look at other people's stuff, and I I, kind of got the gist of what's going on.
0: Mm.
2: So finally, it took me almost a year to actually draw up, the, have the lawsuit ready to go. It was, I want to say, 49 defendants within those 49 defendants there was like 365 claims and in my mind still to this day i feel like i can show you the paperwork where every one of those officers were involved in it
0: mm-hmm.
2: but yet the court granted them qualified immunity when i finally made it to my first trial out of 49 officers and 365 claims there was only one officer and one claim and that was with melissa Olmstead, the officer that hit me with the bean bar. So They ended up taking me to trial Well I took them to trial So when we get there Mind you I had never been to a trial Representing myself Especially a federal jury trial And I had asked To produce witnesses Uh, You know I had turned them Subpoenas and all that Well the courts told me Since I didn't have no money I couldn't have no witnesses Okay But the courts also told me That I couldn't have a lawyer Represent me either Since I didn't have no money And they said my case was not um what was the word they used it wasn't too difficult for me which it was actually very 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 difficult for somebody that only has a ged that's never studied the law and you know i kind of applaud them for that because they made me into a person that i can do it myself now i can show others
0: Mm -hmm.
2: that it can be done that we don't need them we don't need all the money that to pay for these fancy lawyers to go do this and do that no we can do it ourselves and nobody will ever know your case like you will, yeah, so for sure while at the yeah, while at the trial, though, they brought in some people that had nothing to even do with the assault, and they brought in the doctor, and um I wish I could have got a redo because now I would have picked through her super clean, but every time I would ask a question, I wouldn't get an answer. Um, Because, you know, they left me in shackles and handcuffs. They made me, in front of the jury, walk around shackles and handcuffs and question the warden, the doctor, and the officer. Mm -hmm. And there was a couple incidents where I showed, like, hey, well, look, here this is and here that is. Well, the doctor, she kept saying something because there was a medical record showing that you could see where she checked that there was an injury. The nurse did. Mm. And then later on, came back and scratched it out. Man. So I'm asking you to yeah i'm like can you see this she's like well i asked her i said um i have my transcript somewhere but i had told her i said well if there's swelling when would you usually why would you pro- or why would you provide an ice pack? she's like oh you'd provide it within a certain amount of time if there was swelling this and that i'm like so the lady gave me an ice pack for swelling she's like no we kind of she probably gave it to you but i'm like you're not her you can't really speak on why she did it but right here it says she did it for this reason mm. And I said, well, can you tell us that she did check injury, but it later on came back and exited out? And she was like, well, it was probably a mistake. I'm like, no. Can you tell us whether or not she checked the injury and at a time later time came back and exited out? So eventually she said, yeah. Mm. Then I kept asking her the difference between chronic care and uh, acute care.
0: Yeah.
2: Chronic care in the penitentiary setting is where they have to see you. No matter what, for the rest of your time, baby. Yeah, because of what happened. Yeah, the serious well, The nurse stuff. put me in chronic care. Yeah, the nurse put me on chronic care, and that doctor kept refusing to answer that. Kept refusing to answer. Kept refusing to answer. So finally, the judge told me to move on instead of telling her to answer it. Well,
1: unbelievable. I was being
2: railroaded. Yeah, I mean, they literally railroaded me in there. Even the U.S. Marshal that was guarding me said the same thing. He's like, man, you didn't get your fair shake here. Well, the district attorney, there was three of them, attorney generals for the state of Texas Brantley Starr, Ariel Wiley, and uh, Marie Coates. Now, remember, it's just me versus these three. Yeah. So she stood up and asked the exact same question I asked and got the answer she wanted. No hesitation did the doctor hesitate. N- not at all. And so. I mean, I got to actually see, like, hey, the justice system is not justice. There's no justice for us. I mean, yeah, it made me want to give up. It made me want to quit. But right before the jury went in there to do the selection, they asked them to step out, and this is my first real live run-in with qualified immunity. And Ariel Wiley asked, the, uh, the judge if she, he could enter a qualified immunity instruction. And he told her, he said, why would I do that? Because your client says she never hit him. So why would I go back and tell the jury that if she did hit him, it was justified? Mm. So he did not qualified immunity. <laughs> and you, I got to see right then that they played with it to play with people's lives. Mm. They're like, hey, let's just use this, throw this out there just to fuck them over and, and destroy their constitutional rights. Even though this is not something that was put in the Constitution, this is something that was made by the Supreme Court. You know, once he denied it, I was like, okay, well, they go back there. I asked the Attorney General if she would come speak to me. You know, while they were in there, but wanted to talk to her about some stuff, me not getting my copies from them, and that she refused to even talk to me. She just looked at me like I was retarded and left.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, Brantley Starr came to talk to me, and he's the, he was the third Attorney General that first deputy attorney something like that he was number three in the state of Texas well he was very polite very well mannered and you know we talked Um, I heard her Miss Wiley tell him though she's like yeah this is going to be open and shut they'll be back in about 10 minutes this guy's a loser Man. so about two hours later the U.S. Marshal looks at me and he says hey I just want to tell you you won I said, huh, oh, what do you mean? He's like, watch. They've been in there too long. You're fixing to win. Well, the jury sent a question out, and they asked if they could see a picture of the two-foot steel bar that I had been hit with. Um, the judge denied it, told him no. Man. Well, they came, they came back in, um, and they had been asked four questions. One, was she liable Basically, did she do it, and should I get some money for it? And they said, yes, she did it, maliciously, did maliciously intend to, intent to cause harm. But they said I didn't deserve no money.
1: The jury said that.
2: Yeah, the jury said that I should get zero dollars and zero cents. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what happened was, because I ended up over all the court fees, I believe I was charged like eight or $9,000. I ended up paying eight or $9,000 just to hear them tell me something that I already knew mm. because I'm the one that got hit, so I know I got hit. Um, well, I appealed that decision. They appealed that decision. They felt like since there was no money that there was no case. Well, I put it to the Fifth Circuit. It went all the way to the Fifth Circuit, and they ruled on it. And I had one pro- – I already had a couple actually appeals in the Fifth Circuit from some of the officers that were dismissed and this and that. Well, and the Fifth Circuit ruled in my favor and said, you know what? Yeah, he's supposed to get some damages. We're going to give him $1 for getting beat. Mm. To this day, that was in 2017. To this day, I've never seen that dollar.
1: Yeah. No, this was just a mockery. They, they, they just wanted to mock you.
0: Yes.
2: Yeah. And then, so now we, I won another appeal under the Vitek versus Jones case. So when I, I, it goes all the way back, and the judge kicked it right back out for the same reason. So I appeal it for this, well, the Fifth Circuit completely ignored my question that is set by the U.S. Supreme Court saying that I was right and they were wrong. They didn't even bring it up. Well, my other appeal was because the judge said that it wasn't hard enough on me that I can sue them for making me sleep in shit and piss all those days even though that it was law well the fifth circuit comes back and they said yeah you know what from this day forward it's against the law to do this but since it's in that gray area of six days instead of seven days we're going to give them qualified immunity because they didn't know that that was wrong
0: Uh
2: but what we're gonna do is say that hey he can he can go back to court and sue y'all again because you didn't give him a clean place to pee Mm. see the courts they don't have to give you a clean place to sleep as long as they give you a clean toilet. You can sleep in your shit, but you can't piss where you shit. Or you can't have shit where you piss, if you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, And to me, that made no sense whatsoever. Like, I got to have a clean toilet, but I don't have to have a clean bed. And this is not just... You know, I read all these cases. It wasn't just... Some of those cases where they're in a room with poop and this and that no mine was by far the worst case that has ever come across the board where hey this man literally slept in piles of shit that did not belong to him
1: even if it belonged to him he didn't deserve to sleep in his own shit
2: yeah. and you know to not give me water for and this is what i kept bringing up to everybody how is it not against my rights nobody gave me water for four days food for seven but nobody gave me water for four days to the point where my tongue was so swollen i couldn't even talk how can you miss that and i put that clear as day but this time that's when samuel wise i was on a i I was on darrington unit i had got my face my face broke um Somebody had stole my stuff, and, and, and you know, and I tried to get my stuff back, and they broke my face. So I was going on medical chain. I was at Darrington. Well, the decision had came down about the actual sleeping and shit and all that, and I didn't know nothing about it. So I got a email you know, or a J-Pay dude named Samuel Weiss, and, you know, I don't trust lawyers. I didn't trust them at all because nobody would help me when I asked them to. Yeah. And out of nowhere, he popped up. And they're like, "Hey, you got a lawyer visit." I'm like, "I'm gonna go see what this dude's talking about." God sent you help. Well, he had flew down. He he did. He sent me help. And he sent me at a time that I needed it that I didn't even know I needed it. Mm-hmm. So Sam walked in, and he looks just like uh, Hodges off bones. And we talked, and he's like, "Look, it came down. The ruling came down, and you lost this." I'm like, "Wait, wait, wait. Did I? I don't care about what I lost. Did I win anything?" And he's like, he looks, he said, well, yeah, you kind of won this part right here. And I was like, cool, awesome. That's a win. I don't care about the loss. I won. And he started smiling. He's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, man, I won. I don't have no legal education. That's another win. Mm. Um, So we talked, and he was like, well, look, I have only a couple days to do this, if you'll allow me. He said, I'm not going to charge you anything. He said, I just want to help, and I feel like you can help a bunch of people. So I was like, you know what? I'll take I'll take your help. I said, I can't shake your hand because there's glass between us, but I'll fist bump you through the glass. Mm. So that's what we did. And um, he had, I believe, like three days, two or three days to get the en banc petition in. Yeah. And he did. He got He got it in so quick. And I was like, wow. But, you know, at the same time, I had like four lawyers contact me right when he did. Mm. And I didn't know my case was gaining traction like that because, you know, it was, what, 2019, 2020, or 2019? And I had been working on it since 2013, you know? So
0: man,
2: we lost the en banc petition, and then he was telling me, he's like, look, I'm going to go with the Supreme Court with it, but I'm going to need you to allow me to bring in some other lawyers. He called them super lawyers. So I was like, okay, or firm. Um, I was like, all right. Well, Sam's with the rights behind bars. And I believe I was his first client or a first major win client or whatever. Well, they do do this um, Supreme Court writ. And I had told him, please emphasize on the water. And that's what he did. And he broke it down and he said, look, here's the ruling precedent on this right here. And Taylor's case is 20 times worse than what this man went through that was hitched to a hitching post for seven or eight hours. Taylor went through this for seven days. Minimum and, and you know so it was really good so they had a lot of qualified immunity cases that came up. I know there was one that I thought about where they shot this little 10 year old kid while they were trying to shoot his dog a little bitty Chihuahua dog and a harmless dog well and then there was another one where they they gave the cops qualified immunity for stealing like two or three hundred thousand dollars out of this dude's house solely because they had never been cops had never been sued before for stealing. So, they said they didn't know it was illegal to steal. They gave them qualified immunity. So, I was like, man, I know I'm out of there. I just got a whole shit case. Well, there were several times where I wanted to fire Sam just because, you know, I'd get angry and I didn't hear things fast enough. And when all the rulings came, they didn't make a ruling on mine. Sam was like, well, yeah, they kind of overlooked us again. And then that day, the day that I found out I won was the day that the officers and them had decided to jack me for my video visit and slam my arm in the door and break it. And uh I ended up doing a bunch of dumb shit after they slammed my arm in the door and they, they, they took my video visit, you know, it's the visit I hadn't had a visit in god what, nine years? And I was like, Man, I'm gonna get my first visit and, you know, it's going down and they had me cleaning drains. That was my job, cleaning shit drains. That's crazy, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I was filthy, covered covered in sweat and shit drains. And um, they wouldn't let me take a shower before my visit. And I'm like, dude, everybody gets a shower. Just let me shower. And he tried to lock me in my cell, and but my arm was right there. And he just slammed the door, slammed the solid steel door on my arm and cracked it. Damn. And um, they blamed everything on me. So they locked me up, and they locked me in a freaking cell that the toilet was leaking. That's what's so crazy, but then I started getting all this all this media attention, like people were trying to write me, and I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, hey, you just won in the Supreme Court. You just won the first qualified immunity case out of Texas, and only three people have done it, and you're the third one to do it, and the first one to do it in 16 years. Beautiful. And oh, I was ecstatic. That's yeah i was ecstatic and, and you know in september i want to say i i went to send my my first lawsuit off september thirteenth, two thousand 2013 14. and i prayed and i didn't know and i didn't know nothing about the law really at that time i didn't even know how you got to the supreme court but something in my head told me that my case was bad enough to go to the supreme court and i was thinking that it would go just because it was bad mm-hmm. like you're not supposed to do it I didn't know you had to go through certain channels and appeals and all this at that time. But I prayed. I was like, God, please let it go to the Supreme Court and let me win. And and let me be able to do something for my son. And that day that I found out I won the Supreme Court, I broke down. I broke down and I thanked God. Like, I thank you because i I done it.
0: Yeah.
2: I'm from the streets. I got a face covered in tattoos. My head's covered in tattoos. I, I don't have no legal education. I don't have... You know, all I knew was guns, violence, drugs. And I made it. I did something that nobody else had ever done where I'm from.
1: Not even that. Nobody ever in the
2: country had
1: done something like this except a few.
2: And I had basically done it all by myself with no help until the very end.
1: Yeah, you know, like they say, uh, this is how God works. You only needed God, and he showed that you didn't need anyone else except God, and he made it happen. So, this was Taylor versus Riojas. And on November 2, 2020, the Supreme Court decided Taylor versus Riojas, holding that the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit erred in granting qualified immunity to correctional officers sued by Trent Taylor regarding the conditions of his confinement in a Texas prison. Tell me, uh, how does it feel to bring about a change, like fighting this, this qualified immunity, you know, which unjustly protects these federal officials from being held accountable for their wrongful acts? But how does it feel, man?
2: Man, great. Like, like, I used to tell people in there, like, hey, when I was in, you know, in prison, we call it the free world out here. This is the free world when it really should be the opposite. But I used to tell them, I was like, man, sh- when I was in the world, I used, to, I used to pull my pistol. Now I'm in the pen pulling my pen. I said, I don't have to use my hands. I don't have to use a weapon no more. I know how to use my brain. God gave me a brain to use, and I'm learning how to use it. I'm learning how to become a man, and I'm learning how to do something that benefits everybody else. I mean, I've, I haven't given the world much put a bunch of chaos in my life. But one thing I can say for the rest of human history, I'll be in that book as giving one of the first chips towards qualified immunity to knock it down.
1: Yeah, it should be completely knocked down. These guys need to be held accountable. They think like they're God or something. But they don't understand that, you know, this is vengeance beyond words, man. I mean, what they were doing, obviously they were pissed off at you. They hated your guts. They basically wanted to kill you, but they just couldn't because of certain laws, I guess. But, you know, if if they could, they would have killed you. But God had a different plan. Uh, he uh, obviously, uh, we can see it now. Uh, let's see how, what happens. But uh, there's a plan of all of these guys being punished. And uh, God is going to use your hands for this. And uh, uh, take them uh, to their accountability. But how many cases do you think the Supreme Court ruling will affect?
2: Well, and it's, and it's really crazy because Sam, wife actually took another case right after mine from one of my associates that I know in prison on a pepper spray case. And this was less than a year later, and he won in the Supreme Court again yeah. using my case.
1: This is Prince McCoy.
2: Yes, Prince McCoy. Yes, Prince Alamu McCoy. Yes. Yeah. Prince versus uh, McCoy versus Alamu. Yeah. And um, yeah. he he used my case and won his second Supreme Court case within a year on qualified immunity. Yeah. And that's – one win is rare. Two wins is astronomically done. Yeah.
1: I mean, the ball is in motion. You know, people, they must be scared shit of you again. What's going to happen? So, so what's going on? You are suing six officers from the John T. Manford Psychiatric Facility Unit in uh, Lubbock? Or is it more than six?
2: It's real. It's, yeah, I believe it's six. It might be six or seven. Um, I'd have to pull out the paperwork. You know, I've, I've, I've kind of been out here in the free world. You know, I did 11 flat, so been out here and you know i i got an attorney now that's kind of focused on that um, so i'm not i would probably have to kind of touch up on bases just to see exactly who all was brought back in it um i'm gonna say one two riois hunter davidson swaney yeah there should be six i believe there should be six
1: here's your case in the words of juan pablo garnham from Texas tribune.org Taylor is suing six officers from the John T. Montford Psychiatric Facility Unit in Lubbock, Texas. Taylor alleged in the Federal District Court in Lubbock that he was naked when he was forced into a cell whose floor, windows, walls, and ceilings were covered in feces. The faucet in the cell was also covered with feces and Taylor said he could not drink water. After three days, Taylor was transferred to a cell with a clogged drain overflowing with raw sewage. That cell had no bed or toilet Taylor claims he was told to urinate on the floor. No reasonable correctional officer could have concluded that under the extreme circumstances of this case, it was constitutionally permissible to house Taylor in such deplorably unsanitary conditions for such an extended period of time, the ruling said. So while they were doing all this to you, you kept uh, filing these motions or, or, or all of that occurred after you got out from that hellhole?
2: Okay. Um. My motion started. Um. My first filing came... I started filing grievances and everything while I was there. I was trying to create documents and, and, and show what was going on. But once I left that unit to go back to my unit of assignment is where everything started, where the ball started rolling. Mm-hmm. Now, I've... If you look at most docket sheets, even my judge in my case said that this is a long, lengthy case, and he does not even like it. Um, most docket sheets are going to have, you know, 80 to 100-something filings. Well, me alone, by myself, I have over 300 filings mm-hmm. in my docket sheet. Um, I mean, I literally fought tooth and nail to try to change the world for us. Mm. Yeah. I mean, in in... I didn't. I was indigent in prison. I didn't go to commissary. I didn't have none of that. I didn't have nobody on my team at, for a little while. My, thank, thank the Lord that He sent my wife Maria when He did. Um, but prior to that, it was just me. You know, it was me going through it. It was me. Hey, I'll, I'll trade you my tray if you'll give me five or six sheets of paper, or man. you know, things like that. Because I don't have anything. That's cool, man. Then it was people showing, sh- showing up and. You know, I remember certain inmates used to be like, oh, man, that legal shit's bullshit. And then I started winning, and they were showing up like, hey, man, do you think you can help me do this? Do you think you can help me do that? And, you know, it, it, it became something to actually be able to help a couple people that, hey, they shouldn't be in here. Or, hey, they need help. They don't have no money. Like, I used to tell them, like, hey, dude, I don't care about money. You ain't got to pay me. Just give me the supplies to do it, and I'll help you do it. Mm. You know, and I used to tell people, like, I'm not going to really do it for you, but I'll teach you how to do it the same way I was taught to do it. So. And I wrote a book on it, but, you know, the officers took the book and threw it away, whatever they did with it. Damn.
1: You wrote a whole book and you don't have it?
2: No, no, they got rid of I had a book, like, literally it was like a, a Texas Inmate's Guide for Inmates, basically, is what it was. Yeah. And, um. You know, I, I'm lucky that I have an 11-year journal um, that, that depicts my life through those 11 years of prison time. Um, i lucky they didn't throw that away, you know. Yeah. That was probably that, and I have a green book. My green book uh, is ideas and things that I wanted to do when I got out, but life's kind of hard out here. It's kind of different than in there. It's Like I said, in there's not the free world. It's the, this out here's not the free world, In there's the free world. So,
1: how you been coping up, man, since you've been out?
2: Man, you know, I, I came home, and I guess I still had the same mentality from 2009 as far as, like, These people are my friends or this and that. And, you know, so there's a couple people, oh, hey, I've known this guy since I was a kid, you know. Hey, how you doing? Kick it with him, you know, and, and a lot of things went wrong, and... um. My friends kind of weren't my friends no more. Um, And you know, my mom, we we were kind of into it. Um, Some things she said, you know, and she had told them. She had told a few people. She said, "Look, I'm waiting." I even got the letter where she told me to. I was in prison. She said, "I'm I'm gonna stay alive until I can get a hug from you." She said, "That's all I need is a hug, and then I'll be ready to go." Well, when I got out, she was in Alaska, and you know. She said some things to my wife that I didn't approve of, and I kind of held a grudge about it. And she ended up, something happened to her. She was in the hospital. Mind you, while I was in prison, they told me, well, I pulled, they came and asked me to pull the plug on my mom. They said she was dying. So I did, because that was her wishes. She never wanted to be on life support. So they told me she was dead. For two years, they let me believe that this woman was dead. I had put R.I.P. Rest in Peace on all her pictures and all that. Man. Two years later, I got a letter from her one night. She wasn't dead. Well, now fast forward back to where we kind of had our choice words over the phone out here. Yeah, she came back to the mainland states and um, she ended up in the hospital. So my wife begged me to go see her. She's like, "Please forgive her. Just go see her. Go see her. Go see her." So we drove to Decatur, and I seen her, and you know. She didn't look like my mom no more. She, it was totally different. You know, this first time I'd seen this lady in 11 years. And uh, she opened her eyes, and she didn't recognize me. And then I seen it dawn on her, and she was like, that's my son. You're my son. And I was like, I was like yeah, me, hey, I'm here. And so I talked to her, but she was a... Uh, she was kind of gone from the medication, and I told her, "I said, Mom, 'Mama, I'm put my number in your phone. Don't forget to call me.' I don't think she remembered that uh, I put my number in the phone, and she went to Oklahoma. And I uh, excuse me uh, told so a couple days ago I got a a text message from my sister's boyfriend. You know, me and my sister, we don't talk. And he's like, hey, look, got some bad news about your mom. I'm like, what's up? Like, man, she passed away this morning. I'm like, all right. So, um, I talked to the lady that was kind of helping her out out there or whatever, and she was like, look, your mom has a cat. And I'm like, look, man, I can barely afford to Feed me and my family, so I was like, much less take on another animal. And I was like, you know what? I remember my mom, mom saying that was her only friend. Well, then, you know, they, my mom bled to death in a two-day period, and nobody would call the ambulance for her. Nobody did nothing for her. And so we, I ended up taking the cat, and it kind of bothered me because I'm like, damn, this is this is cat I had to sit there, the only friend my mom had in life. And she never remembered that I had put my number in her phone, and all she had to do was call. And then the lady that was taking care of her told me, she was like, well, look, your mom said that she got to give you your hug. She was ready to go. It it really bothers me the way that she went out, you know, by herself. But, you know, um, I got the cat. You know, hey, I'm stuck with the cat. Like I said, Mom, you're giving it to me even after you're gone. I'm cleaning shit for the next 18 years.
1: <laughs> Where was the cat? Was it was it close to your house?
2: No, uh, it was in Ardmore, Oklahoma. So you were into- And they, they brought it down here. No, they brought it to me.
1: They send you the cat.
2: Yeah, they, they put it in a crate and they brought it down here. And what's crazy is um, I have a, a person that is basically my brother. We grew up in the same house together. My stepdad was his dad. And he pulled the plug on his mom last week. She was on life support. And her and my mother died the exact same day. And he called me crying and I was like, man, bro, my mom was gone too. And it's like, wow. He's like, we're well, the last ones left. But I told him, I said, look, that was really God right there. God didn't want them to go by themselves." So we let them go together and they're not suffering anymore. I mean,
1: I don't even know what to say here, man. I mean, all that I can say that, like what I said, like what I said in the text message, that a lot of the things that come at us in life, we don't have any choice. The only choice that we have is how we respond to the situations that we face. Yeah. And... I mean as far as you and your mom are concerned man I don't know what happened and in hindsight everything is 2020 you know we can say so many things I should have done this should have done should have done that but what's coming up is is in front of you man you know just like when we drive a car right we got this big wind, windshield right but the rearview mirror man and you see it's always a small size because we got to concentrate on what's coming up. And on your windshield, you have a case coming up. You're going to take these guys to court... uh,
2: February, yes, sir. It's February.
1: I mean, obviously, you don't want to say anything that would jeopardize the the case, but you're preparing for that, right? Yes. Yeah, because they're preparing to fight you. Because the advocates of qualified immunity... They warn that there's a fear that if the officers get sued, they'll be less proactive and more reluctant to intervene in potentially potentially risky situations, which I don't understand because all the officer has to do is don't break the law, don't be unjust, be fair, don't take advantage of the power given to you, which can be stripped away because you're not worthy of it. So what's the way forward now?
2: Um, the best way that I can say it, the way forward is justice. The ruling already stands from the Supreme Court as far as, hey, this is not going to happen now. It's up to my peers to see the justice is done because it's going to be a jury of my peers that's going to hear everything that happened and see the evidence and, you know. And recently I did a, um, what is it called? I did a deposition. I had to go to Dallas and do a deposition with my attorney. And all these, for for five or six hours, they just kept grilling me and grilling me and grilling me. And, you know, I told it to them straight. I told them some things that they didn't want to hear. And I told them some things that they probably don't want the public to hear. And, you know, they did all this six, seven hours of grilling me over and over and over and over again. And my attorney, when it was his turn, took him five minutes and it was over with. They couldn't even talk anymore. And all he did was quote the books and tell them, you know, you know, hey, this, this. But he showed me that david henderson's the real deal when it comes to that and he has my back basically and he has everybody's back on this qualified immunity and that he's going to make sure that justice is, is is brought forth the way that it's supposed to be so your attorney is david henderson is david henderson yes how happy are you of with the him? l wanger um i i'm ecstatic i am ecstatic um my, my trial attorney is, yeah, he's he's the real deal. Uh, so I kind of felt like, especially when I see him on MSNBC, I'd be like, oh, hey, I, got, I know somebody famous. <laughs> and then somebody told me, well, I think you're the one that's famous. I'm like, no, nah, I'm just some ordinary guy that, you know, tried to fight for my rights. They refused to lay down. Yeah. The main ruling has come down from the Supreme Court, you know, that, that's, that's, if I was going there and that jury told me that I didn't deserve anything, I'd be content because I changed something. I knocked a chip in qualified immunity. I did that, you know, and for me, that's a win. And in, in the whole experience of actually going into court and, and winning and being able to show people that we can do this ourselves, it's worth it, bro. I'd go through it all again because that moment of winning... And knowing, like, hey, I changed something for the betterment of our nation, I do it all over again. Because that one moment, that one moment overruled everything. It, that feeling, that one moment, to know that, hey, I helped some people that I'll never even meet in my life—hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people. Whether it be because my ruling stands for police guard, police officers, and guards. And to know that I changed it, if I had I mean, you know, I wouldn't choose to go through it, but if it happened had to be done, I'd I'd make the sacrifice. You're listening, <laughs> to, Fair You're listening Fair to Fair Play
0: on, on JusticeNews.net. I can get hand lamb with by grand. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Did you say you said me, me? No, I scared me, but, <laughs> but I'm holding up. This is Fair Play, Fair Play on justice Do you what do you